And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on November 4th, 2022. Anthony Tresselt is a certified arborist, aboricultural safety consultant, trainer, and 30-year student of aboriculture and tree climbing. He is a lead instructor with Aboriculture Canada, or ARBCAM, training and education. As a part of the amazing ARBCAM team, he travels, educates, facilitates, and writes, helping to spread the word of safe, efficient aboriculture. Anthony's mission as an arborist leader, educator, and human is to have a positive impact on growth and achievement on everyone he interacts with, whether in person, through books and articles, or online. To quote his mentor and philosophy professor, Dr. R. Ginsberg, teaching is the hope I practice. He is also a regular contributor to several aboricultural trade magazines and has two works of fiction based on trees and tree climbing, Free Falling, an arboreal novel, and Fall Factor, both can be found on Amazon. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Tony. We're delighted you could be with us today. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to find out a little bit about your work with ARBCAN, your training models, and how you go about that. And I think our listeners will really find that interesting to be hearing from a person who spends most of their time up in trees. (laughs) So, um, yeah, let's hear about that. Sure, sure, absolutely. No, I became associated with uh, Arbor Canada formally, probably 2007 and 2008. Informally, I had met the owners, Dwayne and Nancy uh, Newstater, who are also close friends of mine before that. At that point, they were still associated with, with Arbor Master and Arbor Master Canada, but there was some changing ground. But I formally became involved as a lead instructor. And uh, it's, you know, it's the classic arboricultural training model. You have uh, a series of subcontract instructors. Um, in this case, almost all of them are Canadian, although there's a few Americans like me. Um, that do go up and, and help them out. Generally, they, they have full-time day jobs as arborists. Uh, a lot of them own their own companies, but they have a passion for the industry and a passion for, for learning things themselves and then also teaching it. I mean, I found in my career, one of the best ways for me to really master something, to really learn it and know it in depth is to teach it to somebody else. So the ARBCAN instructors, myself included, uh, go around Canada and do a, a lot of training. It's everything from, you know, chainsaw. We do a lot of chainsaw training to climbing, to rigging, all things arboricultural skill related. And there's some plant science in there. There's some uh, pruning for utilities. The utility industry in Canada is a little bit different. The power linemen will tend to do more maintenance work. Um, 
seasonal maintenance work and than they will here in the States. Here in the States, you know, it goes to a, you know, one of the big line clearance companies on a contract and it gets done in Canada. They tend to do the power line and we'll do that a lot. So we spend a good bit of time training them how to prune properly, right? Get proper pruning cycles, make proper cuts, you know, 9390 rules, things like that. But then also a thing that's a little bit unique about Canada is pretty much every major municipality has uh, on-staff tree crew. Some of them are more active than others, but they'll always, almost always have, you know, a bucket truck, an aerial lift, uh, chip truck, chippers. So there's a lot of opportunity to train in the public sector. And then, like I said, it's really, you know, the Canadian tree market is just like the U.S. tree market. It's just smaller, right? Because they don't quite have the, the population base throughout the country. So it's been very exciting. I mean, it's being part of a training organization like that. Not only does it allow me to, to get out of, you know, my own little bubble and see how other people do it in other parts of the world and meet other people and then really kind of refine my skills. You know, I love teaching because I learned so much from it. Um, you know, it is every time I go out teaching, like, yeah, I want to go out and share my knowledge. And that's, that's a beautiful thing, but I learned so much from it and that's what's driven me back to it. So being able to, you know, like I said, get out, change scenery, get up into Canada, do that type of training is really a phenomenal opportunity for any arborist and to, to share that. And it's just, they're just, I mean, the group of, uh, instructors with Arbor Canada. It's just phenomenal. And Dwayne and Nancy do a wonderful job developing them, keeping their skills up, and then, you know, keeping the the logistics of running a training company going very smooth. It's They make it very easy for me to get on an airplane, you know, fly into Toronto, and then go out and do training in Canada. So it's, it's, a, it's a great deal of fun. Is Arbor Can more or less in the metro Toronto area? Is that where they are based? Uh, no, they're actually, their home offices are in Olds, Alberta, which is just east of Calgary. Oh. Um, okay. But they train all over Canada. Probably the exception to that is Quebec. Um, they've done training in Quebec, but Quebec tends to be its own thing in Canada right. uh, with government regulations. So there's a lot around it, but they've trained all over. Like, like you would guess, there's a lot of training in the greater Toronto area. There's a lot of training in the Vancouver area, but they've trained all over. I've been as far north. We were pretty close to the Arctic Circle. I'm like, you're going to fly me close to the Arctic Circle to do tree training? Not much climbing going on up there, but no, it was, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was pretty neat stuff. Um, so yeah, they're, they're all over, but they're, they're home based out of, out of old Alberta. And how did you find your way to, to getting into the tree care industry? Uh, tree care industry. I was, I became an arborist, uh, kind of, uh, vicariously the day I was born. Uh, nice. my, fa my father had a degree in forestry, was in the forestry industry for a while. But the year I was born, he shifted into arboriculture because frankly, that's, that's where the jobs were. Mm -hmm. And he started working for, uh, for Bartlett Tree down here in the United States in the year I was born. And, and so I grew up with it. And while my father never owned a tree company, um, it, it was always much more of a lifestyle for him, not necessarily just a paycheck. So I was exposed to the industry at a very, very early age and kind of grew up with it. And like most young men, that are exposed to any type of, you know, family business, for lack of a better term. I got to be 17, 18 years old. Tree work was the last thing I wanted to do. I, I actively tried not to be an arborist. Yeah. I graduated from high school. I joined the army. I ended up overseas for a couple of years and bumped around. And then eventually coming back, coming back into the States and, and getting out of the service. And about that time, I have two older brothers. My oldest brother, Ben, had started a tree care company in Lancaster. Pennsylvania, which uh, is still going strong this day, 31 years now, going, right. going on 32 years. He and a, a friend of his then became a friend of mine, had just started the company when I got out of the service. So, you know, I'd help him out. I was, I was the sign turner. I was the traffic control guy. You know, it was easier to hire your brother than it was to find anybody else. But, you know, and then I went to college. I went to Penn State University. I have a degree in philosophy. People sometimes chuckle about that, but I say, hey, I use my degree every day. 
Yeah. Uh, but, and then back and forth, still actively not trying to be an arborist. Uh, you know, I was exposed to the industry, but I worked with my brother because he needed help. And then when I got out, as you both know, being in education, if you get a degree in philosophy, when you get an, there's not much to do except go back to school and, or teach. Uh, neither of which I wanted to do at that point in my life um, on right. an academic level. So I just, you know, I, and I remember I had the conversation with my brother, Ben. I said, you know, he, he said, hey, I got a job for you and I could really use the help. And I said, all right, Ben, you know what? I'll do it for a couple of years and then I'll move on. Um, I had fully intended, you know, to find something different with my life at that point. I didn't know what um, that turned into a 17-year full-time employment stint with, uh, with Arborist Enterprises, my brother's company. And I still work with them to this day. Um, I do their safety and training a lot of different things. Sometimes, you know, I help fill in when they're shorthanded, just doing production work and kind of keep my hand in it. But that was... Uh, right. I just, I think I just kind of fell into it. I'm a, uh, an incidental arborist. Was your dad working in, around Lancaster as well? Uh, he worked, uh, the Bartlett office he worked out of was a little further east. It was towards Chester County. So closer to the Philadelphia area. Um, oh, so okay. that, that mainline area, but we lived in Lancaster County. And uh, gotcha. yeah, he, worked, he worked with Bartlett for 21 years, I believe. Wow. So when you're working with the students at Longwood, because I, I know you through the Longwood Arboriculture class, I, I was asked to teach that. They'd never had it there. So right. that was way back in 2009, I do believe. I was working with the arborists on staff there, but it got too much for the arborists. So they hired you as the instructor. So we were co-teaching there. Mm-hmm. And what I want to find out is the techniques that you use from a safety standpoint how do you approach that? Because I know the students always say, oh, yeah, we love Tony. He's great. But some of the things that you do are a little bit atypical that somebody would teach, like using the chainsaw to make something, mm-hmm. which I think is really fascinating. And it also teaches good safety. So can you talk a little bit about that and how that came about? Sure, yeah. Um I mean, teaching at Longwood is really like an instructor's dream, right? You get no more than 10 highly motivated, intelligent students at one time. I mean, how does it get any better than that? You know, sometimes as an instructor or a teacher, you know, sometimes you, you, literally some days like getting the students activated and involved is like pulling teeth and it's a, it's a big struggle. It never seems to be that. So breaching or teaching what you would consider maybe higher risk activities like chainsaw use or climbing and things like that is a little bit easier because they're a little more motivated. They, they want to learn it, tend to pay attention a little bit um, more. If you ask them to do something out of class, you know, as sort of research or something, they'll typically get it done. But really, you know, high-risk activities or hazardous activities, it really comes down to sort of breaking it into small manageable pieces and then giving it to them one piece at a time and making sure that they can master that piece before they move on to the next one. And if they don't ever master that piece, then they don't move on to the next one. So, you know, climbing, for instance, during the course of, of all our classes, we work on like a knot a week uh, every time I'm in. So we'll start working on climbing knots. So by the time we get out and start climbing a tree, they will have a really good familiarity with how to tie the knots that they're going to use. If they can't tie the knots for any reason, then they just simply don't climb, right? Because it's it, one step before the other step. That very rarely happens. For that class specifically, I keep it very basic because I'm not trying to turn them into arborists. I would love it if they would all turn into arborists. It would be a big boon for the industry. But really what I'm trying to have them do in that class is see arboricultural from the production standpoint, right? From the way that my 30 plus years in it has happened and how I've seen it and how production arborist sees it. Because they have a really good insight into some of the, the more, say, academic or educational side of it. A lot of them have a really good background in biology and plant sciences and things like that. So I try and show it to them what it's like, you know, to work in the field and how that works, right? Because 
And so I've been in this industry long enough. So many people want to learn to climb a tree, but they, so many people forget that we climb trees to prune them. We don't prune them because we're climbing around in them. And you can be, you can be the best climber ever, but if you can't make a pruning cut, you're kind of useless in, in the field. So I really want them to take a look at it. And we discuss safety a lot with them. And I take a bit of a philosophical approach with it because you know if you can be safe doing tree work, you can be safe riding a motorcycle or driving your car. So, you know, we all engage in hazardous activities. So I think what we really do is we break it down into small things, uh, gain a certain level of mastery, a mastery at their level, right? Like I said, I'm not expecting them to leave the class and be top-line arborists ready to go to work. That's, that's just not possible. That, that takes a number of years. But to, to get them into the activity, keep them in a, a situation where they're safe, Anytime we do any type of hazardous activity, I say, you know, you don't have to participate. You're not going to get a bad grade because you didn't want to run a chainsaw for whatever that reason is. The idea here is not to turn you into a logger or master chainsaw operator. The idea is here to give you a familiarity with it. So if you use that tool in the field or if you're exposed to that tool or however it might be, same with climbing. So they always have the option to back out. The other thing that's key is um, even in like regular training courses, like working with Arbor Canada, as a solo instructor, I'll very, very rarely take a chainsaw class of more than 10 students, 10, 12 students on my own. And that's just a safety awareness, right? 10 people, 10, 12 people seems to be about the limit where I can pay attention, they can pay attention, everybody's, you know, kind of in a cohesive group and we can keep an eye out for each other. The other thing I've learned too is, you know, the general person doesn't want to hurt themselves, so they will err on the side of caution. So if you give them the tools and techniques to practice that caution, then they will they will tend to practice it on their own. I'm not sure if our listeners know, but some of the number one injuries in the emergency rooms are with chainsaws, mm-hmm. especially the worst damage after a hurricane or tornado oh, yeah. is chainsaw accidents or people getting killed from a chainsaw. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't realize that. And I think that needs to be talked about. And, and having, I grew up in a household where my father was one of the first OSHA inspectors in the country because he developed, you know, he was working in the car industry and working with where they were stamping chassis and fishing people out of machines that didn't have shutoff buttons. So I would talk to the students about that, you know, think about how we've come so far with safety and the safety equipment and the equipment, even like chippers, how far they've come uh, with safety gadgets on them just for, for, you know, protecting the person who's working it. So I think that that's really important. And I'm glad that you teach them what you teach them because they always have smiles on their faces when they're done taking your class. Can you talk about some of the things that you like about the new equipment with the safety standards that we have? Sure, absolutely. From uh, You mean from a production arboricultural standpoint? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every time I get a chance, uh, I mean, I love climbing trees, always have, but anytime I get a chance to use an aerial lift and not have to climb at my back, just is like, yay, you know, because it's, it's a wonderful job. You know, I've, I've loved being a climbing production arborist for a very long time now, but it's a hard job. You can't go out and, you know, do the job day in, day out without it taking a toll on your body. Even if, you know, in my career, you know, mercifully, knock on wood, I've avoided major injury. But, you know, now into my fifth decade, I now understand what my mentors told me when I was in my 30s. They're like, oh, yeah, you'll be high mileage. You'll see it'll come back around. And it does. And, (laughs) you know, I don't I don't regret it. I have no regrets, you know. There's ways to work with it. You can, I've met, I know arborists that are 
well into their 60s and 70s, still climbing on a regular basis and they love it, right? They absolutely positively love it and uh, they're doing a great job. Now, are they climbing like they're 21 or 22? No. But I think what you find with men and women like that in the industry that long and are still highly productive is an attitude about safety that it's not just it's not just an attitude, it's more of a lifestyle and more of a way of looking at moving through the world. And, you know, one of the questions I always ask in my training courses, and we just use chainsaws for an example, I always hold up a chainsaw and I'll say, is this a hazardous tool or is this a dangerous tool? And it, you'll get both, right? And then, you know, say, okay, who says hazardous? And a couple of people raise their hand, okay, who says dangerous? And then I give them the option, well, who says I'm just messing with you with my philosophy degree in, in semantics, right? That can be both. And we'll get that and we'll chuckle about that. But I think what is important to remember about chainsaws, about tree work, is it is hazardous work. You can get hurt or killed doing the work. It doesn't have to be dangerous. You have to make it dangerous. And one of the ways that you can make it dangerous is not use tools the way they're designed to be used. Don't do general safety practices or follow general safety practices the way they're designed to be made. There's not much specifically in tree care currently for OSHA, but we follow the ANSI uh, Z133, which is our arboricultural safety standard. And that documents consensus standard, right? But it's literally written in blood. It is a list of the ways people got hurt or killed doing this work. Mm. And, you know, my mom was never a huge fan of advice in my life, but she did say one good thing. She said, Tony, if you can't learn from your own mistakes, can you please learn from other people's mistakes? Mm. So when you start to see the regulations and the standards in that light, Right? And when you start to do them, not just to check a box and say, okay, I'm following the rules. When you start to do them because they make sense, right? it makes a big difference. And you know, one thing with the Longwood classes, with all my classes, we have a discussion uh, about what, what does it mean to be safe? What is the definition of that word safety? And you know, it occurred to me like five, six years ago, I was going around the country, North America, US and Canada. I had done some speaking in Germany, so I was in Europe. And I was going around and my job was to tell people to be safe but I didn't have a good definition. So I really started digging into it. And I came up with a definition that really kind of opened my eyes. And I like to use it to open up all my students' eyes. And it's really that def definition of safety is a three-part thing. Part number one is you have to identify all the reasonable hazards with the tasks that you're trying to complete, right? So I always use, for an example, crossing the street, right? We're going to cross a busy road. All the reasonable hazards are you could get hit by traffic, right? That's a reasonable hazard. Could you get struck by a meteor? Sure, but that's not reasonable, right? You can't plan your life that way. So step number one, to find all the reasonable hazards. Step number two in the definition of safety, develop a plan to mitigate and or eliminate those hazards, right? And there's a lot of different ways to go around it, but in our crossing the street, well, you know, what's the plan? We'll do it our, what our primary caregiver told us from the very beginning. We'll look both ways before we cross the street. Maybe we'll use um, a crosswalk, right? You know, maybe we'll wait till the street's not busy, but we're going to develop a plan to get across the street safely. Then the third step is really you have to execute the plan. Because you can have the best plan in the world, but if you don't follow it, it won't help you at all. So when I tell a crew or I, I tell an arborist, or I tell an arborist crew, I say, we're going to go out and we're going to work safe today. That's what I'm asking them to do. I'm asking them to, to find the hazards that are reasonable, develop a plan to mitigate or eliminate those hazards, and then execute your plan. When you start to see it that way, that's when they start to build a culture of safety, right? Do we have a plan for this? Did we execute the plan? Did we see all the normal hazards? Because things are going to go wrong, right? It's, we don't work with impunity. But I have found that when you pay attention and when you keep good situational awareness, when you follow that definition of safety, plan ahead, when you work a hazardous job cautiously and don't make it dangerous, when things do go wrong, they tend to be much less impactful, much less tragedy. I mean, you know, as a safety trainer, uh, there's two sets of numbers, right? We could sit here and I could pull up a set of numbers um, on all the people that got hurt or killed doing tree work last year. 
and it's usually about one every two days. Somebody gets hurt or killed in the United States. The bigger number is the people that did the right thing the right way and didn't get hurt. And that's a number I can't give you because you'll never know. Right? When you start to see it that way, then you can start to act appropriately and you can, you can do a hazardous job safely for a very long time. I see how your philosophy background is really dovetails nicely into your training work. One thing, the labor market obviously is uh, hugely dependent on Spanish-speaking employees. And I'm wondering how you've been able to cross that bridge or if other trainers are out there that are working directly with people whose first language is Spanish. Yeah, it's a very big, it's a very big sector of the labor market and we run into it quite often. Um, generally speaking, usually when it comes to sort of the manual labor skills, you know, talking about, you know, the physical skills of, of tree work, of chipping brush, of cutting brush right. up, of, of those types of things, because they're manual labor skills with, you know, a limited amount of, of my limited amount of Spanish and the student's limited amount of English, we can usually work things through because it's a fig, it's a physical, you know, it's a job, just, it's almost a... Uh, Pantomime. Yeah, exactly. Right. But there are cases when it is important to have somebody that can speak Spanish. But I've also found a lot on a lot of crews, it's usually that one guy that it is fairly fluent and it works around. So I've done that and have crossed that line now. It's not as easy as somebody that's fluent, but I've had the, uh, you know, the privilege of working with a great many excellent arborists that are fluent and, and can and do teach. And sometimes that's, that's very necessary, especially at the beginning to really have the, the guy, because they're usually new to the industry. It's, they've never done this type of work in their home country or they've never seen this type of work. They get involved in the work because they like working outside, right? They enjoy the work, so they get into it, but they don't have any experience in it. So it's, I think it's more important that they, you know, somebody is fluent or can speak their language and be understood to get, like I said, some of those philosophical concepts first. And then the, the, the labor, just, you know, how to tie a climbing knot. We don't have to say a word, you know, we could do it right here and now, you know, you're either doing it right or you're doing it wrong. So it, it is definitely a challenge, right? It is definitely a challenge. But I think that sometimes... As a trainer, it's forced me to be a better trainer because I couldn't rely on the crutch of language, right? I had to find new and different ways to present that material instead of just explaining it. I'm in, I made a career out of arboriculture because I didn't want to work in an office, right? I'm not, I, I don't learn that way. I have to see it and do it. And uh, I think a lot of the people, no matter the language they speak in the, in the industry, are very much the same way. So once they have that core fundamental, once they can kind of understand sort of the difference between hazard and, and, uh, in danger, you know, and how one, once that's explained to them and they have a core of that, then the, the, the skills themselves become pretty much universal and can be taught pretty sure. readily, pretty readily. You know, and one of the things I, I was thinking while you were talking about that and pantomiming, mm -hmm. universal hand signals are really important as well, because if you understand universal hand signals, that makes our jobs much easier as arborists, because when, when you're up in a tree, you have to make sure that everything is clear down below and vice versa. And the, using the hand signals is critical. Um, you know, I've always, I've, I will always live with the philosophy of three, that if I teach it, they will learn it, they will teach it. So when they're, when I'm teaching it, they're, they're learning it. And then when they have the opportunity, they're going to teach it to me and then, or they're going to be doing it and then they're going to be teaching it to me. So three things, three, always in threes. And I found that to be a really strong way to teach. But also, can you give us some ideas as to what you see that needs to change within the industry to make things even better than where we are right now? Yeah, that's a big question right there. Um, 
when you look at the numbers over since they've been keeping numbers, well, ANSI's really 1968-ish. OSHA came in 1970. When you start to look at those things, the numbers really haven't changed that much in in those years. On on the numbers changed, but the percentages stay the same. And we really haven't started tracking arbicultural specific incidents and fatalities until probably about 2000. Um, Dr. John Ball started that project, University of South Dakota, now TCIA does it. So now for the first time, uh, you know, in, in 20 years now, halfway through this journey, um, since regulation started up, we're starting to get a really good look at what's going on. And, you know, there's going to be some tools and techniques that make things easier. Obviously, when I started doing, you know, tree work, you know, a bucket truck was it, right? But now with the aerial lifts and crane work and things like that, there's a lot better ways to mitigate or eliminate hazards. So that's going to be a part of it. But with with anything like that, with more complication comes more fail points, right? More chances that something could go wrong. So legislation is part of it. You know, it's it's one thing. Um, it's one thing to do. I think the other thing, the other part of it is you're going to see some improvement in tools and techniques. Um, you're definitely going to see that. But I think ultimately what really needs to change is really the the mindset behind doing the work, right? Because, I mean, so many people get into this industry almost because of the bravado of it. It takes a certain individual with a certain amount of self-confidence slash ego to, you know, repeatedly go at height and do hazardous things. You know, it just does. So, and with that can come a lot of risk-taking to do the work, to work at height like that, to, you know, to fell large trees. It can be, you know, there is a certain amount of risk. You have to, you have to assume a certain amount of risk. Nobody gets, nobody gets through it with impunity. And I think that learning to manage that risk, having good attitudes, taking it away from the, the bravado part of it and working just smarter right? And really starting to understand that it doesn't have to be dangerous work. It's always going to be hazardous, but it doesn't have to be dangerous. Um, For one, I don't think there's any one thing that will really change it. Things are starting to get better. I think that as the workforce changes, that will make it a little bit better. I think men and women are getting into industry now consciously. They're not just doing it almost by default and they're making arboriculture a career. And when you start to see that, it's going to be better. You're always going to have the small tree companies who get it in or whatever, paycheck or, or whatever. But I think on the whole, arboriculture is seen more as a trade. And I think as it's seen more as a trade, and that's going to happen in legislation as well too, not that that's the ultimate answer. But as it's seen that way, then I start, you'll start to see some improvement in, in the number of people that get hurt or killed doing the work. So I, that there's no, no easy answer around that. Do you think having women, more women in the industry has made things a little bit different? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, when you look at the numbers, talking with Dr. Ball a couple of years ago, what was it? If you had a, if you had a woman on your tree crew, you were 85% less likely to have a, a severe incident or fatality. Um, and I think that just comes from risk management. It's not that, you know, there's plenty of female arborists that are risk takers as well. They work at a very, very high level, but I think they see it a little bit differently. You know, the women that I've worked with tend to, instead of just trying to muscle through a problem, will tend to think through a problem, which I think leads to better safety attitudes. And just, yeah, the diversity. I think it can it can only improve. Because we're really, you know, arboriculture is a very male-dominated field. We haven't tapped half of the labor force that's possible. There's a lot of women out there that would be excellent arborists uh, and can do the job at a very high level for on a very consistent basis for a very long time, but it's just not on their radar screen. So anytime you can open up the labor pool that much, you know, it's, you're gonna you're gonna see improvements, but it's definitely it's definitely made a change for the for the better in the industry. Yeah, we have women climbing classes now. It's mm-hmm. totally separate from men. And one woman who had 
been cut, her her lifeline was cut and fell and broke her back. And she's the one who's training because thank goodness she can walk. But she she realizes how dangerous uh, the industry can be. And having somebody like that is really, I think, critical for for presenting information and speaking from experience. And, you know, I remember I was only one of five out of 275 people that went to take my ISA training. And, you know, I looked around, I said, well, it's normal. <laughs> Again, I'm the, right. one of the very few women in the industry or one of the very few women in the room. So, but yeah, you look at, look at things differently. And I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that's missed a little bit with women in industry is when you start to look at tree companies and management and sort of the the office end of it, there's always been some very strong, very, very smart women involved in industry that haven't been involved in the production end of it. And I think that many times they get the short end of the stick. I look at my, you know, my sister-in-law, Tina, you know, my brother Ben started the business, but he didn't do it alone. She's been with him there from the very beginning. And we could go down the list of, you know, family started companies where the female and the family's in the office doing just as important work as the guy out in the field cutting. And they don't get, they don't really get the credit for it. So, you know, there's, the industry has been affected by women in it for a very long time. I think we're just starting to scrape now the surface of a, being, you know, from a production standpoint on the day to day, you know, where the, to use the cliche where the rubber meets the road. But I mean, I've met a number of fine women arborists and business leaders and, you know, that have just done a great job because, you know, tree work from an industry standpoint, from a business standpoint, it's a low margin, high, you know, it's, it's terrible. You got to send, you know, three, three people, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment to go do a $700 job. It's, you know, there's not a lot of market, you know, there's not a lot of margins for return. So any business person that can handle this is, is good, is gifted. And a lot of those people on the back end that you don't get to see are women. And they've been doing an excellent job with it for a very long time. I wanted to just jump back, Tony, to the discussion we started about innovations in equipment and also how that plays into longevity of the employee. Because it is great to hear about people extending their climbing career into their 50s and 60s mm-hmm. and 70s. I remember years ago, the local Philadelphia television station ran a piece on a climber who was in his 80s and close to retiring, you know, and uh, I remember the television station actually gifted us with a with that clip. And, and there he was, you know, uh, climbing old school, of course, but nevertheless, early 80s and still out there doing it. And years ago at at an ISA conference, I think it was in Chicago, I can't remember who the speaker was, possibly a European fellow who who was talking about that very thing, that how the climbing life can be extended way longer than what we might anticipate. Yeah, I think... You know, there's tools that come in. I think it more comes in technique. I think it also comes also to, and once again, going back to attitude, right? Like when I was in my 20s and 30s doing this work, I never, I didn't consider myself an athlete and I certainly didn't treat myself as an athlete. You know, as I started to get to the point late 30s into my 40s, I realized that if I don't start treating my body like a well, like a machine that I'm using every day, things are going to go terribly wrong. So I think a lot of people come into that, into the industry now, with that mindset already, you know, I wish somebody would have told me the importance of hydration when I was 21. Nobody, I didn't know, you know, it's like, you know, I wish somebody would have told me the importance of, you know, stretching and, and warming up. And, you know, once again, now the climbing techniques have changed. So, you know, when you, you go out to a tree crew and you ask, you, you start, you use the word ergonomic, they don't look at you like, 
Well, uh, yeah, no, so they're starting to understand it. So it's a little more prevalent. And, you know, tools and techniques are going to do that. It's still, a, a, it's a hard dollar. It is a physically demanding job. But that's, you know, I think that's what, that's what drew me to it. I liked that going home at the end of the day tired because I worked hard. But what I tell a lot of climbers now getting into this industry is it is entirely possible for you to climb decades, right? And be very productive for a long time, but have an exit plan. It's just math, right? When you're 40 years old, you tend to break, not bend. When you're 20, you'll bend. When you're 40, the same thing will break you. And then if you can't perform your job physically, you can't earn a paycheck. So I have a backup plan. And there's so many great avenues or you know rabbit holes to go down in arboriculture that could keep you in the field but aren't necessarily as physically demanding or allow you to do certain things you know still earn a paycheck still be very active and contributing in the industry but you're not as physically active every day you know so have that exit plan i mean for me because i got into the industry later a little bit later in my 20s i'd had some experience in the military and had seen tree work and i knew how hard it could be on the body. My plan was pretty simple. I said, I was going to get paid with what these hands would do till I was about 40. And then after 40, I wanted to get paid for what I know. And that's, it was right around 40 when I, you know, met Dwayne and Nancy and started doing the training. And I started really being able to earn a living, not just with what I could do, but with what I knew and how to do. And I structured my career that way so that when I was working, I could expose myself to a lot of different situations, a lot of different people, and I could learn from them. So that I knew that, you know, just because, you know, when I, I turned 40 didn't mean I had to quit climbing, right? But pretty much at that point in my career, I kind of wanted to. I kind of wanted to step back a little bit. I was still able to do it. I still, I had the skill set. I just didn't really have the desire to do it anymore. I wanted to do something different and get, a, you know, get away from that hard physical dollar every day. You know, and if that's not your option, that's fine. But have some sort of backup plan. Take, you know, arboriculture as a career is so multifaceted. You don't just have to climb. And I see so many climbers or young people get into this industry and they fall into a pattern I see again and again. They get good technical skill set pretty quickly, right? They can get up and down the tree, right? They can do the work from a technical aspect really good, but they never really take the time to dive into the biology and the science of it. So they're really good technicians, but they don't understand at a high level the arboriculture it's into it. And that limits them because once they're once they either physically choose or they have an accident or an incident and they have some sort of injury where they can't physically do the work anymore they didn't take the time to build up the knowledge to do other parts of the field so it basically puts them on this pattern that if they can't climb they can't work so they do one of two things they leave the industry or they go into management right you know so and you can only have so many chiefs right so i always tell young climbers getting into this you know yeah get your get a good skill set right but don't forget like i said earlier you know we we climb trees to prune them we don't prune them because we happen to be up there climbing around so it's the climbing is like a commute to work it's that's all it is you know the skills that get you up there the climbing the tools and techniques no different than getting in your car and driving to work you got to know what to do when you're at work and that's where a career can be built right for many many decades uh, with or without the physical labor that's involved well, that kind of brings me to the question of the fact that you have to be a lifelong learner. Learning mm-hmm. throughout your life is critical for you to be able to get to the next step. And uh, knowing, and, and I know I meet people and they say, well, that's the last I'm ever going to go to school. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, are you wrong? Right. <laughs> you know, they get out of college and they say, I'm not going to ever go to school again. And then they find themselves in a situation where they're hitting a dead end and you really have to. And right now, the the whole thing, the whole plan is the stackable certifications. Of course, the ISA is doing that too, the stackable certifications. 
how many certifications can you get in this industry and keep going through the industry without having to climb? And they're making that possible now. And I'm sure you're seeing it. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you tell students about that? Yeah, there's, like I said, there's many paths to mastery and to call yourself an arborist or to be a to, to be that. It's just climbing is just one aspect, but anything you can do to, to continue to learn. You know, probably one of the best pieces of academic advice I ever got was when I was, I was doing my undergraduate uh, studies in philosophy at Penn State University. I didn't go to main campus. I went to the branch campus. So I guess it's Brandywine campus now. It was Delaware County. And I had a professor. I ended up taking a lot of like earth science and geology classes for electives because I just enjoyed them. Right? I just, it's, it's an, I like, I like that stuff. But I had a, a professor there and he, I think he had two PhDs and a couple of masters, very educated man, right, in his field. But he said, Tony, read wide and read deep. It's best education ever. And what he meant is read a lot of different things. When you find something interesting, go down the rabbit hole, follow it, be a lifelong learner. And then when that rabbit hole exhausts itself, come back up, read wide and read deep. And, you know, that that's an attitude that I've taken throughout my life in all aspects of it and a career base from arboriculture. You know, I've tried to expose myself to a lot of different people, a lot of different things all over the place and, you know, do that read wide. And then when I found something that was very interesting, you know, read deep. And I found that being a lifelong learner, the opportunities happen again and again. I was presenting with uh, Dr. Coder one time. We were at a I don't even think it was an industry event. I think it might have been a recreational tree climbing event in Georgia. But we're sitting down having lunch. And for some reason, we start talking about tree removals. And anytime you can talk with, talk, have a chat with Dr. Coder, it's worthwhile. You're going to walk away with a ton of knowledge, right? So anyway, but he looks at me, he says, Tony, this is the best piece of advice I ever got for production tree work, especially tree removals. He said, Tony, if you're going to take a tree apart, take it apart the way it was put together. Oh, I like that. And when he told me that, that's when I started to realize that, you know, the science and the biology and all that stuff that goes into a tree really is directly affects what I'm doing out there with a chainsaw, right? Because if I can take a tree apart the way it was put together, it's better for me and it's better for the tree, right? And that that one, you know, those that opportunity just opened my eyes. And I tell a lot of people, like, there's so much that goes into this. You know, it's it's you know, understanding wood fiber and how wood fiber works is is part and parcel to running a chainsaw. You know, understanding leaf mass and branch diameter and and all that is part and parcel to to pruning. Right? People always ask, well, when you're pruning a big tree, how do you know what to take out? Doesn't matter what I take out. What matters is what I leave behind. You know, that's the science end of it, right? So. Take the time to learn that as a production arborist. And then, one, you'll be a better production arborist. And two, if you ever decide not to climb trees, you can do something else with all that knowledge. With your students, I'm assuming you get into uh, Ed Gilman's work with structural pruning. And I'm thinking if I was a 19-year-old, you know, and you're up at the front of the room, it's so much information to take in you know, the concepts that have been laid out now. And, and we had Dr. Gilman on uh, earlier in the year, and he, you know, had some very cool things to share in terms of storm-resilient trees based on his structural pruning concepts. You want to share a few thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It can be it can be a lot, right? When I mean, it's if you want to delve down into it, you know, just the process of compartmentalization, because build a career on that. Right, studying that. Yeah, but I think that you know, like I said, reading wide and then reading deep, and then taking the core concepts of you know what Dr. Gilman's saying about wind resistance and storm resistance. I think it can be very actionable. You might need someone to interpret it for you. Dr. Gilman's awesome at doing that. Right, he's really right. good at taking the complex yeah. and turning it into something. 
So, you know, look for those clues, right? You know, don't try and I, you know, a lot, of, and I, I get this a lot, like a new arborist in, they want to take the certified arborist exam and they're like, that's oh, just so much. It's like, take it one piece at a time. You can do the work, you know? And then, you know, if you go see someone like Dr. Gilman speak, only try and take two or three things away from the talk. He's going to give you about 5,000, right? I mean, if you try to get it all, your, your mind's going to blow up. It's not going to happen. So find two or three things that really resonate with you and use that. And then, you know, go back. So try and take it, try and break your learning down into small things that are actionable. And then, like I said, there's a, there's a lot of resources out there, like all his stuff on that he puts online that you can refer back to and stuff is awesome. But really, it can be very complex, but it's also very simple in, in some respects, you know, when you start to look at branch ratio and, and things like that. And then going around the industry to different industry events, like people always ask me, you know, my training career and how I how I structured myself. You can draw a straight line from where I started as an arborist, just not wanting to be an arborist, helping my brother out to where I sit here today in front of you, right through the tree climbing competitions, right? I started competing tree climbing competitions at the chapter level in the Pendel chapter. The people I started to meet there, right, started to open up other doors and avenues for me to explore all kinds of things from climbing to, to all this different stuff, right? And that eventually leads. So getting involved in those industry events with the people that are doing the work on the field, you know, conferences and trade shows are great. You know, it's a great place to go. Uh, different types of reading. There's all kinds of, of stuff out there, certified arborist exams, the stackable, but keep learning. Like, like Eva said, it's that, that lifelong learning is, is so important. And I think that sometimes in my branch of arboriculture, where it's been very production oriented, people forget that. They think that it's all just about climate trees and it's not. It, there's so much more to it, right? When you can understand the science and the biology behind that tree, you climb it differently, right? You'll work in that tree differently. You'll see it differently. You know, one of my one of my favorite uh, female arborists, Kathy Holzer, out in uh, Seattle. There's a great tree company out there, Allen and Limb Tree Service. We were climbing around at a ITCC International Tree Climbing Competition once, in a big oak tree. And she said, "You know, sometimes just like being in a huge cathedral up here." I'm like, "There it is. It's kind of cool, right? You know, and and to see it that way that you know, when you start to understand that, you know, trees are living, changing organic structures, right, that absorb energy, you know, from the earth and put it out. And you have the privilege to climb around in that and hang out with it. And they work at a, on a very different time span, you know, that goes on compared to the, you know, humans. Like, I love teaching tree biology and say, you know, what's better, compartmentalization or like wound healing on the human hand? Inevitably, people say it's far better, you know, Human, you know, immune systems way better. I'm like, how many four thousand year old humans are there? Mm-hmm. You know, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of different ways to look at it, right? And to start to understand that, and to, I mean, you know, to literally, I think at this point in my career, as an as an arborist, as a climber, as a trainer, as an educator, as a facilitator, I'm starting to rely back on the wisdom of trees now in my life, personally and professionally. And I, I wish somebody would have told me to do that when I was 20. I wish somebody would have told me. Now, you know, we used to call it a pre-climb inspection. Now I consider it walking up to a tree and introducing myself. Mm, right? Lovely. That's very you nice. Know, That's really nice. And when you start to think about the work that way, it opens up a ton of doors, um, a ton of doors for you to, to have a career and to, to just be a, a bigger part of the whole. I always think of what Robin Kimmerer says, ask the tree's permission. Mm-hmm, absolutely. You know, I, I feel like we could have you on, Tony, just to probe your philosophical, the philosophical side of Tony and ter- in terms of where we're just going with this discussion. And it strikes me, you know, Eva and I have done over 100 podcasts and how so many of them 
about halfway through just kind of veer into call it metaphysical or spiritual, but that that the what you just said about asking the tree's permission and it's not really a pre-climbing inspection. It's like this respectful act of stewardship. I'm going to climb you. I'm going to take care of you. And really, maybe this is a stretch. You could extend that into the removal process. You know, a lot of Eva, especially is a big proponent of what do we do with the product once it's on the ground? Because all that tree did for the, its lifetime was capture carbon. So do we, the indignity of tossing it in a landfill or turning it into industrial mulch, or can we do something a little bit better, a little bit more respectful that, you know, takes in the biology and the, the service to the planet? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and it's, it's definitely something you start thinking about. Like, you know, there's, you know, thousands of trees I've cut down over my career, you know, and, and how much was waste and how much was beneficial. And I, I also understand, and I explained especially to the Longwood classes where we're kind of looking at an overview. Um, you know, really the arborist's job is to be that interface between trees and culture or humanity, right? We have to coexist on the planet. The tree by itself doesn't need me. The tree doesn't need pruned, you know. There are some health benefits and there's all those things. But generally, uh, you know, my job as a production arborist is to go out and make trees and humans work together, right? Make them be able to live together. And, you know, sometimes removal is a part of that. But taking a bigger look at it, a more philosophical look, for lack of a better term, gives the job a greater depth, right? That I think a lot of people are looking for um, when they get into tree care, but they don't quite know where to look for it. They feel a connection, but they don't quite know how to go about it. And then they start to feel bad about, you know, I mean, there's been tree removals that I've been asked to do that I've turned down because I'm like, I'm not cutting down a perfectly beautiful oak tree. It's been there for 150 years because you don't like acorns in your gutter hire somebody else. I can't ethically do it. You know, it's like, I'm not, I didn't develop this skill set to do that type of work. You know, you could get into the ethics of it. And that's a whole nother conversation. But it but does think- give that homeowner the opportunity for pause. It's like, same thing. Can you prune these uh, four gigantic limbs off because it's shading the swimming pool? Mm-hmm. That's happened so many times. Right. And it's the most ridiculous request. Right. One quick comment I wanted to share is just how when I'm always thinking of the trajectory of how the tree care industry has changed in my time doing the work is, you know, when I was a the 16 and 17 year old learning to climb, it was all about prune out the deadwood, you know, and mm-hmm. the company I worked for didn't want any thinning, which was cool because we didn't even have a chipper in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. So it was all hand loading the brush. But then fast forward to last summer when Hurricane Ida came through and ripped trees apart in metropolitan Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, it was game over, a whole new world in terms of every tree should be structurally pruned. If you're out there as an arborist, that's the service that most needs to be represented because we're dealing with these weather extremes and the days of just prune out the deadwood, I think, have have passed. Yeah, I think when you start to look at structural pruning, you know, you have the opportunity as the arborist when you have a good understanding of uh, the biology and everything that goes into tree to really help the tree reach its potential, right? You can't fix all woes, right? You don't have a magic wand that you can wave around. But if you look at it from that standpoint, you know, it can help the tree reach its potential. Yeah. Well, this has been a wonderful chat with you, Tony. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I always enjoy talking with you when I'm at Longwood too. But we, we have one last question for you. 
Sure. Um, and that is, what is your favorite tree or group of trees? My favorite tree to climb and work in is I really like Kentucky coffee trees. Always have. I've always liked Kentucky coffee trees. From a technical aspect, it's a big tree with a lot of places to stand and work comfortably. And there's just something about the way they move through the world that I've really always enjoyed. That's an Very excellent cool. answer. Wow, <laughs> that's great. Well, thank you again so much for being on our podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Tony, you've been great. I hope we get to meet in person someday. I'm sure we will at some point, although I'm kind of hiding these days, you know. But, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's easier that way. I think I'm, uh, I think I'm channeling Dr. Shigo at this point <laughs> in my career. Like, you want to see me, you find me. <laughs> but now I'm good. I'm, I think all great philosophers are trying to hide. <laughs> no, I don't know about hiding. Just, uh, just, dropping off the, just dropping off the radar for a little bit. Take care again, Tony. Yep. Thanks so much. You take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.